ministers today offer you. He didn't offer health, wealth, and prosperity. He offered a cross. He said, come and die. He who does not forsake all that he has, take up his cross, deny himself, follow me, cannot be my disciple. Those were the words Jesus used to describe discipleship. And Paul was a man who knew that deeply experientially. He suffered for Christ. And he told Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, so if you're a Christian, you're going to experience some sort of persecution. And if you do not experience any persecution, maybe it's because we're not living godly in Christ Jesus. So suffering is inevitable, but Jesus says, Paul tells us, if we suffer with Him, we will be glorified with Him. That's the good news. So the prosperity gospels are right about the prosperity. They're just wrong about the timing of it. We receive that richness and glory hereafter when we go to reign with Him in the eternal state. So that's our hope. That's your hope, Christian. And uh, we learn about that hope in the Scripture. So let's once again open the Word. But before we do that, let's go to the Word in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that You love us. We love You. We love You. We are mesmerized by who You are. We're amazed at Your infinite wisdom or the way in which You have designed Your church to function. You have centered it around Your glory, not ours. Your kingdom, not our agenda. Your praise, not our praise. Your church is God-centered, not man-centered, vertical, not horizontal. And that's what we really need. True spiritual life and nourishment and growth doesn't come from our selfish indulgence. It comes from our beholding of Your glory and our finding our joy in You. We can become what John Piper calls Christian hedonists. We know that. We can find our delight in You. We can indulge ourselves in You. And when we do that, then we'll find real gladness, real joy, and real contentment. So I pray You would help us to do that. Paul could do that. Paul faced many... uh, forms of trials in his life. He was shipwrecked, beaten with rods, scourged, despised by his own people. And we know eventually, according to church history, he was beheaded in Rome. All for the sake of the Gospel. The very Gospel he had once sought to stamp out. The Christ he once despised. He got one glimpse of his glory and spent the rest of his life suffering for his name. I pray that we would see that glory in the Scripture this morning so that we would be willing to endure all things for Christ. We would be willing to be the scum of the earth, a theater for the wicked to come and watch and hate us and persecute us, but we're willing to endure it all because we have a lasting city, one whose founder and builder is God, has foundations that last forever, a heavenly city, the new Jerusalem that will come out of heaven Come down to the new earth and we will dwell in that perfected city forever. So Lord, we gladly suffer shame for the name of Your Son. Help us like Paul to be humble. Paul would only boast when it was absolutely necessary for the sake of the purity of the Gospel. Lord, how easy we boast in self-defense and for our own justification, our own glory. Paul was so reluctant to boast that it would take something so severe as the gospel being attacked to lead him to boast. And I pray you would grant us that humility as well. 
And even in that, he boasts in his weakness, the thorn in the flesh that he had, messengers of Satan tormenting him. May we do that, Lord. May we learn how to boast in our weaknesses so that when we are weak, you are strong. That your power might be displayed in us. We have this ministry, we have this gospel message, we have it all in a jar of clay, a clay pot, a frail body, subject to sickness and pain and death and suffering. And all of that is so that you might get the glory. That the surpassing power may be displayed to be of God and not of us. And we thank you for that. So help us to be content. Help us know, like Paul told the Philippians, how to be content in all circumstances, because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So Lord, sanctify your church, purify your people, bless our worship. Thank you for meeting with us. And now as we open up your word, we pray that you would meet with us in a unique way. That we would see your majesty in the scripture, that we would understand the truth of your word, and be enabled by the Holy Spirit to live it out for your honor and praise. We pray these things to that end. Amen. Amen. Well, all right, we're going to continue to work our way through the book of 1 John. You can go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And for this morning, we come to the final five verses in the fourth chapter. Namely, verses 17 through 21. 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. And as you know, verses 7 through 21 could really be taken as one long section dominated by the theme of love. The theme of love. A form of the word love appears some 27 times in these 15 verses. Clearly, it is the central idea, the main theme. And uh, I told you that I've struggled how to deal with the passage early on. We could deal with it as one passage with one theme, one outline, and essentially preached as one sermon over several weeks. But after digging deeply into the passage, I determined it would be better to deal with it as three distinct but related thoughts, related passages, verses 7 through 11, which we looked at two weeks ago, verses 12 through 16, which we considered last week, and verses 17 through 21, which is going to be the subject of our attention this week. In uh, verses 12 through 16 last week, the word abide kind of took center stage. John used the word six times there. And there he presented three evidences of our abiding. Three evidences, three proofs that we abide in a saving relationship with God. And those three evidences were our love for others, the Spirit's work in us, and our confession of Christ. Those who do those three things, see those three things in their lives, and be confident that they're in a saving relationship with God. But now, in verses 17 through 21, this theme of love, yet again, becomes central. It becomes the dominant idea. And as you already well know, John wrote this letter as a series of tests. He wrote this letter to provide his readers with assurance of their salvation, a means by which they could distinguish between who was true and who was not, who was real and who was fake. A true believer from a false believer. And to do that, he presented three tests throughout the letter. Three tests by which we can make that distinction. Three tests. The three tests are the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. A true Christian believes the truth about Christ doctrinally. 
He obeys the commandments of God morally, and he loves God and his people socially or relationally. Those are the three tests. Doctrinal, moral, and social. So if you want to know if someone's a Christian, if you want to know if you're a Christian, if you want to know if someone's a true teacher or not, these are the three tests that you can always apply, and they never fail. But once again, here in verses 17 through 21, John has come to the third test, the social test. This is part three of the social test. This is the test of love. Let me read the verses to you. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. As I said clearly, the theme there is love. The word is used 11 times in these final five verses. John just has so much to say about it. The word love dominates this passage. I told you that love is a constant command in Scripture. We see it over and over and over again. It's all the way in the beginning portion of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. commands us to love our neighbor as ourself. <clears throat> that command is then repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And essentially every prominent figure of the New Testament also issued this command to love. Jesus gave us the command... Paul gave us the command, Peter gave us the command, Jude gave us the command. And of course, the Apostle John also issued this command to love repeatedly. In fact, his constant emphasis on the subject has led him to have the title, the Apostle of Love. John is the Apostle of Love. He just circles around to that theme over and over again. In fact, some of you were thinking, why does he continue to preach the same thing every week? Again, that's because John just keeps saying the same thing. His book is cyclical. You read Paul's writings, they're very linear, very logical. He, goes, he just takes one idea, he systematically works through that idea, then he moves on to the next idea. Very systematic with Paul. John teaches by way of repetition. He just keeps coming back to the same foundational truths. But each time he does it with a slightly fresh perspective. He broadens our understanding. Uh, the first time he mentioned this theme of love was back in chapter 2. You can go there if you would like. <clears throat> chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. There John wrote, Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you. But an old commandment which you've had from the beginning, the old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Love is an old commandment, love is a new commandment. It's old in history, it's new in Christ. The old commandment, which said, is to love your neighbors yourself. The new commandment, love your neighbor the way Christ loved you. It's old and it's new. Verse 9. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. 
But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Love provides evidence that you are in the light, in Christ, that you are in the kingdom, that you're truly saved. And then, having underscored the kind of love that God commands, in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, John highlights the love that God prohibits. Did you know that? There's a love that God prohibits. There's a love that God hates. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is a negative kind of love that we're to avoid. This is the love that God hates. God hates a love for the world. A love for the world. You cannot love God and love the world. You cannot love God and love the evil system that is opposed to Him. So although we are to love God and love His people, we are to reject the evil system of the world ruled by sin and Satan. That's the love God hates. Then you go to chapter 3, verses 11 through 19. And John once again circled back to the theme of love. In verse 11 of chapter 3, he writes, For this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We're to love. We're to love. In verses 16 through 18, John defined the kind of love he calls for. Verse 16, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Love is exemplified in Christ giving Himself for our salvation. Sacrificing Himself for our good. And we are called to imitate that love. To emulate Him. Verse 17 further defined love for us in chapter 3. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? It doesn't. It's like saying, go, be warm, be filled, brother, but you have what you can, you have what he needs and you don't give it to him. That isn't love. That's indifference. Verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. That's love. It's not sentimental words. It's not a fuzzy feeling. It's action. It's sacrifice. It's service. It's self-giving. It's to sacrificially serve someone else at your own expense. For their good and for God's glory. It goes beyond words and it expresses itself in its sincerity through our deeds. And now, coming back to chapter 4, verses 7-21, through 21, John yet again picks up the theme of love. Very familiar to us. We're not going to learn nothing drastically new this morning. But it's a good, refreshing reminder. Mm-hmm. And in verses 7-11, through 11, we saw a few weeks ago, John gave three reasons to love. In verses 12-16, through 16, he presented three evidences of our abiding, one of which is love. And now in verses 17-21, through 21, the focus again is love. We're commanded to love. It's a constant command in Scripture. We must love one another. And in these five verses this morning, John is going to present four more features on love. Four more facts of love that become four more reasons for us to love one another. And as we look at these one at a time this morning, my hope is that each of us would be motivated to love one another for the glory of God. So four more reasons to love. Number one, first reason, 
We should love one another because of the confidence of love. The confidence of love. Look at verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. John says, by this, love is perfected with us. Perfected. I told you the Greek word for perfected there, teleao. It could mean perfect, but it could also mean mature, complete, to bring to an intended goal. That's the idea here. John is not saying that we love perfectly. We know that's not the case. None of us love perfectly. It's hard to express love just getting to church in the morning, isn't it? It's hard to express love throughout the week when your dogs are barking and you're sermon prepping and the kids are yelling. And it's hard to express love. None of us love perfectly. We all sin. We all fall. We all stumble. John is not saying that we love perfectly. Only God does that. What John is saying here is that love can, in the Christian, come to its intended goal. can come to a kind of maturity. When? Well, he's already made similar statements like that in the epistle so far, or two statements. The first time he made that statement was back in chapter 2, verse 5. And there he said, Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. God's love comes to its intended goal in us, when we obey His commandments, when it produces obedience to His Word. He made a similar statement in chapter 4, verse 12. He said, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. God's love comes to its intended goal in us when His love is displayed through us to a watching world, when we love one another. And now, here in verse 17, he makes a similar statement. He says, By this, love is perfected with us. By what? You have to go back to verse 16. Verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. Those who abide in love... Those whose lives are marked by habitual, sacrificial, Christ-like love can know that they abide in a saving relationship with God. And that assurance provides confidence, and when that assurance produces a deep-seated confidence in our heart, God's love has come to its intended result in us. God's love in us and His love through us provides confidence. That's what John says at the end of verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. The word confidence, we've seen the word before, parousia. It means boldness, freedom of speech, assurance. It's defined as a, as a fearlessness. It's the opposite of fear. We can face judgment fearlessly, John is saying. Back in chapter 2, verse 28, he used the word, and he said, by abiding in Christ, we can have confidence at His coming. Christ is coming again, and when He does, Christians can have confidence. You hear people talking about the return of Christ, and obviously we live in a very unique time in our country and in our little pocket of the world, and it's changing drastically, and people talk a lot about the coming of Christ. I don't know when He's coming. It might be another 2,000 years. It might be another two minutes. 
who knows? But I know this, as a Christian, you can be confident at His coming. And if He doesn't come to you, you're going to go to Him at death, and you can still be confident. But here, John says it's confidence in the day of judgment. When Christ comes, He's coming in judgment. And we can have confidence in that judgment. What you need to know is this. God will have a day of judgment. God will have a day of judgment. A day in which He will right every wrong. He will administer justice. There have been many days throughout history in which God has judged. Peoples and nations. Scripture calls it the day of the Lord. We hear about that a lot in the Old Testament. God has a day of the Lord in which He visits specific peoples with judgment. There's a coming day of the Lord. The New Testament warns us about many days in which God pours out judgment on people. In fact, in one sense, God is always judging. God is always judging. Every disease, every calamity, every natural disaster, all of that is a result of God's judgment on a fallen world. None of that would exist if we lived in a perfect world. But God, in justice has cursed a sinful world. God also judges by hardening sinners' hearts and abandoning them in their sin. Romans 1 talks about that. We could call it the wrath of abandonment. God is a God of judgment. His judgment comes in many ways, many forms, many expressions. But there is going to be a final day of judgment. A day in which all people will be summoned subpoenaed into the courtroom of God to stand before the highest tribunal in the universe and give an account for their life. We will stand before Him in judgment. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus often spoke about that final day of judgment, didn't He? The idea that He was just lovey-dovey is not at all biblical. Anyone who thinks that has never read the New Testament. Jesus spoke much about judgment. Some have said He spoke more about hell than He did heaven. He had much to say about judgment. And specifically, the day of judgment. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus said, But I tell you, that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. It's going to be a day of judgment. And on that day, we're going to give an account for every careless word. Every word thought, indeed. Paul spoke about that day of judgment as well in Romans chapter 2. Turn with me to Romans 2 for a minute. Romans chapter 2. It's a few books to the left. It's the sixth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then Romans. Romans chapter 2. If you know me well, you know this is my favorite book. This is Paul's magnum opus, his most important work. He provides uh, the most glorious treatment of the Gospel in all of Scripture here. He's got good news to share, but he begins with the bad news. The bad news. In the first major section of Romans, namely chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul essentially says, all people will stand guilty before God. All people are guilty. All people have broken the law. And all of us are going to stand before Him in judgment. That sounds like bad news, doesn't it? He's the judge, we're the criminal, we broke the law, and He's just. And Paul defines that judgment in chapter 2, starting in verse 5. 
Romans 2, starting in verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There's going to be a day of wrath. The righteous judgment of God. Day of justice. This is the same day of judgment John's talking about in 1 John 4. And in verse 6, Paul says that God is the one who will render to each person according to their deeds. On the day of judgment, you, me, all of humanity, we're going to stand before God, we're going to give an account for every deed ever committed in the body. And verses 7 through 16 then define that judgment in great detail. Verse 7 To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, eternal life. Paul says those who persevere in doing good get eternal life. Now wait a minute. The very next chapter Paul says there are none who do good. You know what that means? None of us fall into that category. None of us. That's a hypothetical category. There's only one who actually falls into that category. You know who that is? Jesus. The good news is all who are in Jesus are clothed in Him and they fall into that category. That's the good news, isn't it? When we stand before God in judgment, it will be as if we did persevere in doing good because Christ's perfect life is accredited to our account. (coughs) Then in verse 8, But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, wrath, and indignation. That's all of us. All of us have, out of selfish ambition, obeyed unrighteousness. Obeyed sin. We've broken the law. Verse 9, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, that's everyone, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, that's no one except for Christ, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. God's judgment is impartial. He judges both Jew and Greek, male and female, free and slave, by the same standard. What's the standard? It's His law. His law. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That's the Gentiles. And all who have sinned under the law, Jews, will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. The standard is the law. Those who do good are those who are the doers of the law. Those who perfectly obey the law of God. That's bad news for sinners. Verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they also show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. In other words... Even pagan Gentiles all across the world who've never heard of the Bible, they have a morality, a sense of morality. Why? Because God wrote His law in their hearts. They're without excuse. Verse 16, This will all happen on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. On the day. The day of judgment. God will even judge the secrets of men through Christ. That's a terrifying thought, isn't it? Everything you've ever imagined, God knows it perfectly. Exhaustively. And you're going to give an account for that. That's the day of judgment. Those who do good get eternal life. Those who do evil get wrath and indignation. Judgment. 
It's all according to His perfect law. Now go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Now it's getting really fun, right? Some people who don't even like the Bible can read the book of Revelation. So this should be interesting. We're going to Revelation. Revelation chapter 20. That's the final book of the Bible. Turn all the way to the right. Chapter 19, you have the coming of Christ, the binding of Satan. Chapter 20, the millennial reign, Christ on the earth for a thousand years. And then at the very end, you have the final judgment. Final judgment. And in Revelation 20, we learn a little bit more about that final judgment. What we call the great white throne judgment. Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, that is everybody, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The book of life is the book of the saved. It's the book of the elect. It's those whose names are enrolled in heaven. The book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. So you have books. Those books contain our deeds. And then you have a book. The book of life. That's a book of the saved. Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the final day of judgment. All people will stand before God. We will all give an account for every word, thought, and deed. And all who are found to be guilty will be consigned to eternal hell in the lake of fire, under the wrath of God, forever and ever. What happens in the lake of fire? Verse 10, go back to verse 10, it tells us, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What happens in the lake of fire? Eternal torment. Torment day and night forever and ever throughout all eternity. As Jesus said, it's eternal punishment. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's where the worm does not die. The fire is never quenched. Horrific reality, isn't it? Our hearts should break for those who are headed there. Our hearts should be concerned for our own eternal destiny that we might not go there. Eternal punishment. Back to 1 John 4 now. So this is the final day of judgment. All people will stand before God. All who are found guilty of breaking His law will receive His judgments, cast into the lake of fire. And John says as Christians, we can have confidence in that day. Wow, how can anyone have confidence on such a dreadful day? How can anyone have confidence? Well, because Christ died for us. Christ lived perfectly for us. He lived for us and He died for us. He is our substitute. And all who are in a saving relationship with Christ by faith, listen to this, are clothed in His righteousness. All who are in a saving relationship with Christ by faith are clothed in His righteousness. We get His record. We get His grade. We got an F, He got an A, we get His A, He gets our F. 
We get His reward. He gets our punishment on the cross. He is our substitute in His life and in His death. He died for us. He took the wrath of God that we deserve upon Himself. Every drop of judgment. He rose again on our behalf. He intercedes for us at the right hand of God, pleading our innocence. Does that give you confidence? The sinless, perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing, righteous Savior is at the right hand of the Father, pleading your innocence. Right? You go back to chapter 2. He is our advocate. He is our divine lawyer. A lawyer who's never lost a case. You've got a good lawyer if you're a Christian. Good attorney. That gives me confidence. So all men who turn from their sinful rebellion and surrender to Christ by faith can have confidence in the day of judgment. Clothed in His perfection. We stand innocent before God because of our faith in the finished work of Christ. Because we're robed in Him. All who are in a saving relationship with God will be declared innocent on the day of judgment by virtue of His righteousness. The question is, how do you know that you're in a saving relationship with God? How do you know that your profession of faith in Him is genuine? The answer, by this. By our love. Those who see the Holy Spirit producing His own divine love in them can be confident that they are Christians and can therefore be confident in the day of judgment. We don't have to fear God's eternal wrath. We don't have to fear everlasting hell. We don't have to be afraid of death, afraid of the afterlife. Christians can actually look forward to that. Paul says, I'd rather die and be with Christ. I would rather depart. For me to live as Christ, to die is what? Gain. Because I go to be with Him. It's been said that death does nothing for the Christian, but changes address. And that address is much better. Go to be with our Lord. So we have confidence. And John says we have this confidence, the end of verse 17, because as He is, so also are we in this world. As He is, so also are we in this world. What does that mean? Well, at least two possibilities. First, this could be in relation to God. This could be in relation to God. We are in the world the same way Christ was in the world in relation to God. He is the Son of God. We are children of God. He is the Son of God by nature. We're the children of God by grace and adoption. He's in a loving relationship with God. We are in a loving relationship with God. We're loved by Him. Christ didn't have to fear judgment. Neither do we. Christ didn't have to fear everlasting punishment. Neither do we. Because we are in Him, clothed in Him, identified with Him. We are sons of God in the Son of God. God, what did He say in Matthew 3? The baptism of Christ. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm what? Well pleased. If you're in Christ, God is well pleased with you because you're robed in Christ. So maybe He's saying we're as Christ in relation to God. There's another possibility as to what John means here. He may be saying this. Just as Christ was in the world, so are we. We live like He lived. We walk like He walked. We love like He loved. Christ was in the world and He loved those in the world. We are in the world and we love others like Christ. We love like the Savior. And for those who love like Christ, 
They can be confident that they belong to God, and therefore they have confidence in the day of judgment. We have confidence because we are as He is in the world. In verse 18, John states the same truth in a slightly different way. He states it negatively. There is no fear in love. There's no fear in love. Look, if your wife is confident that you love her, she's not going to fear that you're going to beat her, cheat on her, or kill her. Right? If your children are confident that you love them, they're not going to be afraid that daddy's going to abuse them and injure them and kill them. Because fathers love their children. So in the same way, if you are confident that God loves you, if you're confident that you're a child of God, that He's your Father, that you're in a saving relationship with Him, then you will be confident in the day of judgment. You won't fear. Your love for God and His love for you will cast out fear. It will dispel it. There's no fear in love. So John says, perfect love casts out fear. Fear. It gets rid of it. It dispels it. Mature love that has come to its intended goal within us removes fear. Now look, we, we know there is a sense in which we should fear God, right? What does Proverbs say? The beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We ought to fear God. But that's not talking about a terrifying fear. That's talking about a sense of awe, reverence for God, a reverential worship of God. It's not talking about terrifying fear. Unbelievers should have a terrifying fear of God. They're under His wrath now, and they're headed for the full expression of that wrath in eternity. If you're not a Christian today, you have legitimate reason to be absolutely terrified of God. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God who is a consuming fire, Hebrews tells it. What a terrible reality. The same God who destroyed nations through Israel. Wiped out every living person in that nation. That same God, if you're not a Christian, is absolutely angry with you at this moment. That's reason to be afraid, isn't it? But Christians don't have to have a terrifying fear. Because God loves us. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven us. Daniel Aiken says the judge is also our Abba Father. So we don't have to fear. Perfect love casts out fear, John says, because fear involves punishment. A terrifying fear of God involves a fear of His wrath, His eternal judgment. The word for punishment here, the Greek word, it only occurs one other time in the New Testament. It's in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, and it refers there to eternal punishment. Jesus said, these, speaking of the goats, will go into eternal punishment. This is punishment in hell. This is God's everlasting wrath. Christians don't have to fear that. There is a sense in which God punishes us. We get that. God does punish us, but not in this sense. He punishes us the way a father punishes a son, not the way a judge punishes a criminal. He chastens us. He disciplines us. He does it all for our good. But He doesn't execute us and condemn us in His wrath. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None. 
Every drop of condemnation that you deserve, if you're a Christian, fell upon Christ. He drank the full cup of God's divine wrath. There's none that remains for you. No wrath remains for God's people. We do not have to fear the day of judgment. 1 Thessalonians 5 says that we are not destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that this Jesus is the one who saves us from the wrath that is to come. Isn't that good news? He delivers us from wrath. So John says at the end of verse 18, the one who fears is not perfected in love. The one who fears is not perfected in love. That is not to say that if you doubt your salvation, you're not a Christian. That's not what John is saying. That is not to say that if you fear the wrath of God and final judgment that you're not saved. That's not necessarily true. Obviously it could be. Maybe the reason you do fear the day of judgment is because you're not a Christian. Maybe it's because you know there's something wrong in your life. You know you don't pass the test of 1 John. And then you should be fearful. But true Christians can struggle to find assurance, can't they? We talked about that in 1 John 3. True believers can struggle with a condemning heart and accusing conscience. And if that's you this morning, if you struggle to have confidence in the day of judgment, what should you do? If you look at your life and you say, you know what, my life is marked by the work of God. His grace is clearly evident in my life. My life is increasing in love and righteousness and obedience and faith. You see that in your life, like I told you several weeks ago, you need to believe the Word of God over the Word of your heart. Believe the Word of God over the Word of your heart. But if you're not a believer, you should fear. If you're a professing Christian, and this is just something you do on Sundays and you're living in habitual sin and unrighteousness, and there's an absence of love in your life, then you do have a reason to fear. What did Jesus say in Matthew 7? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. They'll say to me, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform miracles in your name? And what will he say? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Friends, this is serious. If you're not a Christian, a true believer, you should fear. You should be afraid. Imagine if I could take every thought you've ever had, play it on a large screen here for everyone to see, and invite the whole community. Would you show up to that? You'd run the other way. I would. I'm like you. I'm sinful just like you. But God sees it all. You're going to give an account for it all. That would be bad news if you're not a Christian. But the good news is, for believers, Jesus took the punishment for every evil thought, every careless word, every godless act. Jesus died to suffer the wrath of God for all of that for you. God loves you. God is your Father. If you're confident of that, you're going to have confidence in judgment, aren't you? So brothers and sisters, look to Christ. If you're not a believer, my exhortation to you today is that you would flee the wrath of God, that you would turn from your sin and your rebellion, and by faith and faith alone, you would submit yourself to Christ as absolute Lord. If you do that, God will forgive your sin. You'll come to know the love of God. And you'll come to have assurance. 
But if you are a believer and you see love in your life, you can be confident that God loves you with a saving love. That He is your Father. And you should have fearlessness in the day of judgment. And if you're not confident in that, if you struggle with that confidence, John says love is not perfected. The one who fears is not perfected in love. That means love has not come to its intended goal in you. It hasn't reached a kind of maturity. You need to be reassured of God's love for you. You need to examine your life and see His love displayed in you. And all of that should produce confidence. But if you struggle with that confidence, come talk with me after the service. I would be glad to counsel you as to the condition of your soul in hopes that you might attain that blessed assurance. Well, that's number one. And uh, for the first time, I think, ever, I'm not getting to number two. So we're going to have to pick up in two weeks with the last three points. Brothers and sisters, the question simply is this. Do you see the love of God displayed through you to the world, to your brothers and sisters? If you do, be confident. If you do not, fear and come to Christ. But for us who belong to Him, we have confidence. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we have such confidence and judgment. We thank You that Christ has bore our judgment for us. He has took our, the wrath that we deserve. He bore our sin in His body on the tree. He's our perfect bleeding substitute, delivering us from wrath, judgment, indignation. We know, Lord, the only one who falls into the category of Romans 2, doing good and earning eternal life, that's Jesus. But we know that He earned life for us and we're thankful for that. So God, give us confidence. If there are people here this morning who struggle to attain that confidence, I pray for them now that You would give it to them. There are true believers here who illegitimately doubt the reality and validity of their salvation. I pray that You would overwhelm their heart with a sense of Your divine grace and love, that they would believe the Word of God over the word of their condemning heart, and they would find confidence and boldness and fearlessness in judgment. So give Your people grace, I pray. Amen.